The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1897, a magazine ran a story called A Pair of Silk Stockings about a woman named Mrs. Summers who had found herself the unexpected possessor of $15. It gave her a feeling of importance, but it introduced a new question. What would she do with the money? The outcome of her day opens up a window into how we feel about consumer goods, symbols of status, and ourselves in society. Sociologists could write books about all that. This story, A Pair of Silk Stockings, captures it all in fewer than 2,000 words. You might have heard of the magazine that published the story. It was and is called Vogue. You also might have heard of the author. Her name was Kate Chopin. Kate Chopin's A Pair of Silk Stockings, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go, everyone. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Another Emma's Pick today. Our producer, Emma, has gone through the world of fiction and poetry and has chosen something to share with our listeners. Last time was To Build a Fire by Jack London up there in the Yukon. Today, we return to warmer climes. Louisiana, probably. That's the setting for most of Kate Chopin's works. We read one of her stories before, Desiree's Baby. We read that one at the height of the pandemic. That was a good one, too. Chopin is sneaky good, easy to overlook. It would be very easy for this story to go wrong, or not wrong exactly, maybe that's not the right word, but to go dull, to lapse into a kind of finger-wagging or moralizing. I have a strange sense as I'm reading it and seeing the remaining story shrink on the page. You can see that there's not much left, and you think, how's she going to stick this landing? There isn't much space left here, and the concern, as I read the story a few days ago, was that we'd get some kind of big wrap-up in deus ex machina. Surprise, they all die of cholera, or something similar. Kidding about the cholera, but you know what I mean. A rich person shows up with bags of money to make everything all better, or a bus comes barreling down the street to throw the old bat under some tires. And tidy things up that way. No, we're not in the clunky hands of a hack writer who's typing for money. We're in the hands of an artist who also happened to be well-paid. She liked Vogue, appreciated it, thought it was a magazine for women, but one that also happened to be fearless and truthful. Women who were not just robots with pocketbooks full of cash and eyes ready to absorb advertising mixed in with pretty pictures. Women reading Vogue had deep inner lives, shifting psychologies, wants and needs, living within limits, and sometimes testing those limits. It was the audience for this story. Dear listener, are you a giver or a taker or something in between? Maybe you have children or Parents in need. This sounds like an ad, doesn't it? It's actually it's an ad. <laughs> Maybe you have children or parents in need. Maybe you have someone ill in your life, someone in pain, someone who needs you and your help. And maybe you do what you can for that person, for him or for her. Or maybe you're the sort who is helped by others. 
Where does money fit into that equation? Is it your money? Do you feel entitled to it? And is there enough of it? Do you have enough to supply what you want? And if not, is that a problem with the supply? Or are your wants too big? It's easy to moralize and say that the person who wants the the fancy clothes or the new handbag or the sexy car or the big house, well, that person is grasping, desperate, a materialist. They have their priorities all screwed up. And we all know people who spend too much and are gaudy and are miserable anyway. Aha, we say, clucking our tongues. That person doesn't know what happiness is and money can't buy you love, etc., etc. And that's all true. But, 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 there's something else here. Deep psychological currents run beneath this surface. There's fitting in. There's a sense of identity, a sense of self. No one is crying tears for the rich couple who suddenly can't afford their private jet and now feel ostracized by their fellow billionaires. Good, fine, let's eat the rich. You were living a spoiled, rotten life anyway, weren't you? But what about at a smaller and less villainous scale? The mother who's worked hard and has not treated herself to anything new in years. The mother who wears old clothes just because all her resources are devoted to her children. Who loses a sense of herself in the process. We don't necessarily need to base friendships on social status and levels of wealth. But it's hard when the discrepancy is great. You want to go to dinner. It's not always comfortable. One person feels left out. The other feels too showy. Put this in a group context and the oddball will feel either too rich or too poor. And if you're in such a group and suddenly kicked out, what does it mean for you? What if you're an athlete and you, you bust a knee and can no longer play? How much longer will you feel a part of the team? When does it become too painful to hang around them? When do they stop inviting you? And even if you're there, do you feel the same way as you did before? Money is like this too. If you have it and then you don't, you adjust first of all with what you spend, what you wear, how you eat, where you live, and so on. Secondarily, you adjust to your position in society. Maybe then you get to the question of who you are. So let's get to the story. We'll do an annotated version where I stop now and then to point something out. I'll try not to be too intrusive. And let's do a listener email to give you a full sense of show. No one's leaving hungry at the History of Literature podcast. You'll push yourself back from the table, your belly, or in this case, your brain full. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. 
bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, our email comes from dear listener Stephanie, who writes, Hello, I was in my garden this afternoon listening to your podcast about the end of the affair. I live in the south of France, so I'm already preparing my garden for the future vegetables. The sun was here, the birds were here, the newborn flowers were here, and you were here too. It was just a perfect afternoon. I don't expect more from life than one of these moments of bliss. Twenty years ago, I discovered English literature at the university. I had a wonderful teacher who loved sharing his passion for English literature. After each lesson, I spent hours in the school library, wandering in the books. Books are my passion. I don't think I read enough, though. I always have hundreds of things to do. I am now an English teacher, not a literature teacher. I teach in a middle school, so... It's quite hard to tell my pupils about my favorite authors. I have looked for a podcast like yours for a long time. When I'm listening to you, I have the impression of being a student again, still captivated by the writers' lives and their books. Thank you so much for what you are doing. I bought you a coffee, but it's nothing when I think of all the joy you're giving to your audience. I'll be back in my garden this weekend, and you'll be here too. Smiley face. Stephanie. Oh, dear Stephanie, thank you so much for writing me this email, which warmed my heart. Stephanie also added a follow-up. The first email came in over the winter, and she sent a follow-up to say the garden was a disaster. It was all scorched by the sun, but she still has happy memories of the days when the podcast was accompanied by the promise of spring. Summer always does that, doesn't it? Spring promises, summer breaks those promises one after the other, and then... Fall laughs at our folly, and winter levels the place, so we think we will never feel hope again. But we do. We're suckers. Suckers for spring. Okay, to respond to Stephanie, those coffees aren't nothing, Stephanie. I love getting them, and I think of my listeners and their generosity whenever one comes in. Over there at historyofliterature.com slash shop, where you can buy a virtual coffee. They make me smile. And coffee is my miracle drink, along with tea and water and, I guess, alcohol sometimes, although I hardly ever turn to that these days. Who needs it? I have emails like this one to give me that social glow. I'm glad to hear from a teacher in the south of France who has a passion for books and likes wandering in the books. Wow. I love that expression, by the way. Not wandering in the library or wandering among the tall shelves, but wandering in the books. That's the best sort of wandering in my book. No pun intended, or I guess half intended. All right, intended, because I'm weak. And I prattle on in my moments of sentiment because I don't know what to say, and I don't want those moments to end. Thank you, Stephanie. 
Good luck to you and your garden. I'm sure next year will be a bumper crop. Kate Chopin and a pair of silk stockings after this. Silk Stockings by Kate Chopin. Little Mrs. Summers one day found herself the unexpected possessor of $15. Okay, I'm going to pause there. One sentence. Look at that sentence. Little Mrs. Summers. A missus. She's married or widowed and she's little. What a word. Small. Does that mean small? Presumably there's maybe something physical about it or her size, but little can also mean Small in a psychic sense, someone who is down, low, beneath, reduced, shallow, not a big, great soul, full of confidence, a mousy person, perhaps, who suddenly has, unexpectedly, 15 big ones. This is 1897, of course. $15 is a nice chunk of change. So, where is this story going to go? A little Mrs. Summers who's got 15 bucks. Is it going to tell it? Where's it going to go next? Is it going to tell us how she got it? Let's return to the story. It seemed to her a very large amount of money, and the way in which it stuffed and bulged her worn old portemonnaie gave her a feeling of importance such as she had not enjoyed for years. That's sentence number two. Don't worry, I'm not going to Interrupt sentence by sentence. But now we have our story in place in one paragraph, just two sentences. You have to be economical when you're writing these short stories. So what do we know? She has the money in her portemonnaie, which is the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's French. You know me in French. It's the French word for pocketbook or small purse. Hers happens to be old and worn. She feels important in a way she hasn't in years. She used to be rich. The portemonnaie was once new. She was once new, newer. She was once less little. So now we know. We don't need to know how she got the money. We need to know what it will mean to have it, and even more precisely, to have it again. Back to the story. The question of investment was one that occupied her greatly. For a day or two, she walked about apparently in a dreamy state, but really absorbed in speculation and calculation. She did not wish to act hastily to do anything she might afterward regret, but it was during the still hours of the night when she lay awake revolving plans in her mind that she seemed to see her way clearly toward a proper and judicious use of the money. Okay, good. It's me again, interrupting. Proper and judicious. She's walking around. This is like, is this is this kind of like me buying a lottery ticket and then waiting a few days to check the numbers? You'd think I'd check them as soon as the numbers are drawn, right? I'm going to be suddenly transformed into a rich man. Why wait? I'd want to know right away. And yet, sometimes I wait weeks because I don't want to know that I've lost. I'm not buying the prize. I know I'm not going to win. I'm buying the dream, 
the opportunity to spend a few idle minutes thinking, wow, I could have a much easier time of it if those numbers go my way. I know it's probably a waste of money, given the ridiculous odds. So I will waste less of it by keeping the dream alive, waiting to check the numbers, maximizing the hours of hope I get for my little $2 investment. Maybe that's what little Mrs. Summers is doing too with her money, dreaming. We hear, but ultimately settling on something proper and judicious, which is what we will hear about next. Next paragraph. A dollar or two should be added to the price usually paid for Janie's shoes, which would ensure their lasting an appreciable time longer than they usually did. She would buy so-and-so many yards of percale for new shirt waists for the boys and Janie and Mag. She had intended to make the old ones do by skillful patching. Mag should have another gown. She had seen some beautiful patterns, veritable bargains in the shop windows, and still there would be left enough for new stockings, two pairs apiece, and what darning that would save for a while. She would get caps for the boys and sailor hats for the girls. The vision of her little brood, looking fresh and dainty and new for once in their lives, excited her and made her restless and wakeful with anticipation. Ugh, what a list. What a list in that little paragraph. There's nothing for her. It's all for the kids, and we see what kind of scraping she does to get by. Mending, patching, darning. This is the world I come from, by the way. My grandmother made lots of clothes for herself, for her two daughters, for her grandchildren. And my grandmother didn't even consider herself to be that frugal because her cousins used to make matches. <laughs> That's really cutting close to the bone to save money that way, right? <laughs> Make matches. Wow. Okay, back to the story. The neighbors sometimes talked of certain better days that little Mrs. Summers had known before she had ever thought of being Mrs. Summers. She herself indulged in no such morbid retrospection. She had no time, no second of time to devote to the past. The needs of the present absorbed her every faculty. A vision of the future, like some dim, gaunt monster, sometimes appalled her. But luckily, tomorrow never comes. Oh, Mrs. Summers, dear God, she's hanging on. Her past is too painful to revisit, and the future is too frightening. All she can do is live in the moment, like someone treading water, hoping to keep their their mouth above the surface. She can breathe in some oxygen for the time being. I hope this is not you, dear listener, but if it, it is you, isn't it? It's you and me both. We all have a dim, gaunt monster ahead of us. So let's not think about that part of life, but focus on the today. The monster can wait dimly and gauntly. Oh, wow. That writing. This is good stuff. <laughs> Back to the story. Mrs. Summers was one who knew the value of bargains, who could stand for hours, making her way inch by inch toward the desired object that was selling below cost. She could elbow her way if need be. She had learned to clutch a piece of goods and hold it and stick to it with persistence and determination till her turn came to be served, no matter when it came. 
Hmm. I like little Mrs. Summers. I recognize her. This is my mother, my grandmothers, the parents of my friends, my grandparents who fixed a cracked plastic turkey baster with a little duct tape rather than shell out 79 cents for a new one. Or it's my friend's mother who had her kids buy hamburgers at McDonald's, not cheeseburgers. And if they wanted cheeseburgers, they could wait until they got home when she would open up the bun and slap a slice of craft on there because that was cheaper than the markup that McDonald's charged. These are people who cut coupons, who move inch by inch to the bargains. That's little Mrs. Summers somewhere in 1897. Robber barons are living larger than life, smoking cigars made of ground-up poor people, probably, or something. Here, we have life shrunken down to the size of a little Mrs. Summers, a mouse, trying to survive. But, okay, there's a pivot. That's the next word. But, she could scrimp and save with the best of them. But, where will that take us? But that day, she was a little faint and tired. She had swallowed a light luncheon. No, when she came to think of it, between getting the children fed and the place righted and preparing herself for the shopping bout, she had actually forgotten to eat any luncheon at all. Oh, what a paragraph. This is some serious deprivation, but it's not uncommon for moms or parents sometimes when you're taking care of others. You forget to take care of yourself. Or you remember, but there just isn't time. What does it do to you to forget to eat or sleep or buy anything for yourself? Ever. It's like being in a prison. Baby jail. One of my friends used to call it. She's got four kids, Mrs. Summers. At least four. We never hear how many boys there are. There's a few, at least more than one. And there's two girls who are named... Ah, it's like being in a prison, suddenly being released. You might go on a quick little bender, wine and women and song, maybe, and who can blame a person for that? Next paragraph. She sat herself upon a revolving stool before a counter that was comparatively deserted, trying to gather strength and courage to charge through an eager multitude that was besieging breastworks of shirting and figured lawn. An all-gone limp feeling had come over her, and she rested her hand aimlessly upon the counter. She wore no gloves. By degrees, she grew aware that her hand had encountered something very soothing, very pleasant to touch. She looked down to see that her hand lay upon a pile of silk stockings. A placard nearby announced that they had been reduced in price from $2.50 to one dollar and ninety-eight cents. And a young girl who stood behind the counter asked her if she wished to examine their line of silk hosiery. She smiled, just as if she had been asked to inspect a tiara of diamonds with the ultimate view of purchasing it. But she went on feeling the soft, sheeny, luxurious things, with both hands now, holding them up to see them glisten and to feel them glide, serpent-like, through her fingers. Two hectic blotches came suddenly into her pale cheeks. Let's pause there to appreciate the writing, 
The stockings glide serpent-like through her fingers, a perfect description physically and a very suggestive one. These stockings are clearly tempting our little Mrs. Summers. Can you think of any other serpents who might be good at temptation? <laughs> Hint. His name rhymes with Hayton, and he's good at doing just that, and her name is a palindrome. Need more hints? Think John Milton, although if that's a hint that works for you, you, you probably figured it out already. After the serpent-like glide, oh, two hectic blotches on the pale cheeks of our little Mrs. Summers. Let's see what happens next. She looked up at the girl. Do you think there are any eights and a half among these? Oh, she's tempted, all right. Who can resist the luxury of the silk flowing through the fingers? And that one line of dialogue, Virginia Woolf said it, right? Dialogue should be, or was it Edith Wharton? Dialogue should be waves crashing against one another. You don't flood your, you don't overload your narrative with dialogue. You have one line that tells you everything. And this line is so good. The weakness on its way, not, oh, it's not over-explanatory, right? It's not a line like, oh, I could use a new pair of silk stockings. I never buy anything for myself, you know? But it's all there. All that is submerged because what's underneath, if it's spoken, it flattens it out. It reveals too much to us, the readers, because what's underneath might also be something much more animalistic. If the sentence were, oh, I could use a new pair, I never buy anything for myself, it would show some self-awareness, some self-control. But this line, do you think there are any eights and a half among these? Which is just the sort of thing you would say when you're on the verge of letting yourself go. This lets us live with the idea that what is really going through little Mrs. Summer's mind is, I want, I want, I want. Or maybe even something more savage than that. Too primitive for words. The sound that sheer lust makes in our mind. Coveting and lusting and needing. And all that tamped down in order to say casually, do you think there are any eights and a half among these? Oh, do you think? Do you think? As if I can take it or leave it, really? That's... That's how she is on the surface, and inside it's want, 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 need, need, need. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Now. Now. <laughs> oh, boy, this is really good. Kate Chopin. Wow. Okay. Back to the story. There were any number of eights and a half. In fact, there were more of that size than any other. Here was a light blue pair. There were some lavender, some all black, and various shades of tan and gray. Mrs. Summers selected a black pair and looked at them very long and closely. She pretended to be examining their texture, which the clerk assured her was excellent. Oh, clerk, you are Satan's messenger, aren't you? You're Satan's servant helping out. 
with the temptation eight and a half oh yes why of course <laughs> that's interesting you should ask that's a common size there are tons of those more than any other look at these colors dear little mrs summers as she reels her in and oh yes the texture is excellent hey no shame in this what the clerk is doing here that's her job i used to sell shoes you tell people what they want to hear. When they say, well, will these shoes stretch? You say, but of course. They're the most stretchable leather we have. And when they say, but but do these make my feet look fat? You look down in horror. <laughs> Sudden horror. Oh, dear God. You crammed them in there, didn't you? The feet look like horses' hooves in those things. But you say, not a bit fat? What? No, not a bit. Not a bit. I would say your feet look svelte. Oh, and here's a pair that will make your feet look even svelter. As you remove the, the hooves and, and replace them with some actual human-like shoes. Hey, it's a living. Back to the story. We cut off Mrs. Summers as she was about to muse aloud. A dollar and ninety-eight cents, she mused aloud. Well, I'll take this pair. She handed the girl a five-dollar bill and waited for her change and for her parcel. What a very small parcel it was. It seemed lost in the depths of her shabby old shopping bag. Oh, dear God. Two dollars are gone. She got the stockings, but that's just a drop in the ocean, isn't it? A drop in the desert. A single drop that sizzles on the sand. She's been deprived for so long. She's crawled across this parched earth for so long, taking care of her kids, and now the parcel she buys just disappears into that open maw of sadness and deprivation and longing that is her shabby old shopping bag. Back to the story. Mrs. Summers, after that, did not move in the direction of the bargain counter. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Isn't this the story of an addict? After, after tasting, after getting a little taste, she told the taxi to turn around and head up down for the corner. Ugh. Okay. She took the elevator, which carried her to an upper floor into the region of the ladies' waiting rooms. Here, in a retired corner, she exchanged her cotton stockings for the new silk ones, which she had just bought. She was not going through any acute mental process or reasoning with herself, nor was she striving to explain to her satisfaction the motive of her action. She was not thinking at all. She seemed for the time to be taking a rest from that laborious and fatiguing function and to have abandoned herself to some mechanical impulse that directed her actions and freed her of responsibility. Mom is broke. Mom, <laughs> the mom in her is broken. All those thoughts about what she should do for others it twisted her so tight, it's finally broken. It's like she's an addict with a needle. Go through the motions. Get the drug in the vein. It's not you talking anymore. It's the deep-seated need that has taken over your mind. 
How good was the touch of the raw silk to her flesh. She felt like lying back in the cushioned chair and reveling for a while in the luxury of it. She did for a little while. Then she replaced her shoes, rolled the cotton stockings together, and thrust them into her bag. After doing this, she crossed straight over to the shoe department and took her seat to be fitted. She was fastidious. The clerk could not make her out. He could not reconcile her shoes with her stockings. And she was not too easily pleased. Hmm. Sounds like they needed Jack Wilson on the case. I reconciled shoes with stockings like there's no tomorrow. I was the Renoir of reconciling shoes with stockings. But I digress. She held back her skirts and turned her feet one way and her head another way as she glanced down at the polished, pointed-tipped boots. Her foot and ankle looked very pretty. She could not realize that they belonged to her and were a part of herself. She wanted an excellent and stylish fit, she told the young fellow who served her, and she did not mind the difference of a dollar or two more in the price, so long as she got what she desired. Oh, as long as she got what she desired. Look at the psychology of this and the outstanding insight that came in the sentence before. Those two sentences, her foot and ankle looked very pretty. She could not realize that they belonged to her and were a part of herself. My God, this poor woman. Her helping of others, her self-deprivation have alienated her from her own body, her own self-image. She's been so attentive to the others in her life, she no longer knows who she is, no longer can recognize herself, and she has so little self-regard, so little self-esteem, that a single change like new stockings can turn her into a kind of third person to herself. She's Cinderella with the glass slipper, only instead of being recognized and loved by a Prince Charming, She's now open to being recognized and loved by herself. She's Cinderella and the prince, both of them at once. The cinder girl covered with ashes, the potential for a princess somewhere inside, and shoes that can make it happen, and here it is. They look so pretty. Her foot and ankle looked so very pretty, she could not realize they belonged to her. Ah! Don't we? Do you still think? Do you think she's a villain here? Spending stuff she's not allowed to spend? Wasting money? A pair of silk stockings? $1.98? Isn't this worth $1.98? Even if it means that those little brats of hers have to have patched clothes once in a while? They can deal with that, can't they? Oh, I'm rooting for Mrs. Summers. Here we go. Back to the story. It was a long time since Mrs. Summers had been fitted with gloves. On rare occasions when she had bought a pair, they were always bargains, so cheap that it would have been preposterous and unreasonable to have expected them to be fitted to the hand. Now she rested her elbow on the cushion of the glove counter, and a pretty, pleasant young creature, delicate and deft of touch, drew a long-wristed kid over Mrs. Summers' hand. A kid. Let me explain that. These are kid gloves. Ha <laughs> This is where the expression comes from. 
Kid leather gloves are made with very delicate leather, the kind of gloves that aristocrats could afford to use because they had servants to carry the bags and chop down the trees and so on. Kid gloves. She's, oh, they feel good, this leather. This long-wristed kid that she's got on her hand. What does she do? She smoothed it down over the wrist and buttoned it neatly, and both lost themselves for a second or two in admiring contemplation of the little symmetrical gloved hand. But there were other places where money might be spent. <laughs> like for your kids? <laughs> Remember them? Well, those days are gone now, aren't they? Little Mrs. Summers is on a, an all-out bender. She might as well be on the corner with Lou Reed waiting for her man. Back to the story. There were books and magazines piled up in the window of a stall a few paces down the street. Mrs. Summers bought two high-priced magazines, such as she had been accustomed to read in the days when she had been accustomed to other pleasant things. She carried them without wrapping. As well as she could, she lifted her skirts at the crossings. Her stockings and boots and well-fitting gloves had worked marvels in her bearing, had given her a feeling of assurance, a sense of belonging to the well-dressed multitude. She was very hungry. Another time she would have stilled the cravings for food until reaching her own home, where she would have brewed herself a cup of tea and taken a snack of anything that was available. But the impulse that was guiding her would not suffer her to entertain any such thought. Oh, this is beautiful. We have a beautiful setup here. And this is where I started to get worried. We're two-thirds of the way through the story. When you glance down at a short story and see how much is left, and you think, oh boy, we're two-thirds of the way through. This is the perfect time to encounter a crash. Will she crash? Are we going to see her poor kids? Maybe she'll go home and find that one of the boys was so hungry he ate a light bulb and is now on death's door. She will be punished for buying these clothes, these gloves and shoes and stockings, right? Because poor people are... Wait, maybe she didn't buy the gloves. Did she? Other places where money might be... Oh, no. She did. She got them. She and the clerk were admiring them for a second or two. Lost. Even the clerk says, look at that neat little symmetrical gloved hand. But you can't dawdle to admire because you got to burn through the rest of this money. <laughs> Not on the kids. On yourself. So, is she going to be punished for that because poor people need to learn not to want nice things? This isn't preachy like that, though, is it? Not, not so far, anyway. Instead, we see that, damn it, this is just how things are when you're so deprived. The multitude is well-dressed. It's not like she's headed into, I'm going to be better than everyone else. She just wants to belong to the multitude, which is well-dressed. That's how it seems to her. There's more to life than just eating gruel to survive, eating anything. That's what she does when she's hungry. Anything available. You imagine that's the, the sand at the bottom of the cereal box, right? 
More to life than that. One needs a few creature comforts sometimes. Whether that's right or not is beside the point. The point is that we feel deprived and items that feel good and look good can make us feel better about ourselves. It's just how we are and it's just how the world works. I'm going to stop talking now and let the rest of the story play out. If you have any brilliant thoughts along the way, just imagine that I'm saying the same thing. And if your ideas are stupid, imagine some silence, because hopefully I didn't think those thoughts, or if I did, I was wise enough to keep them to myself. So let's get back to the story. Don't you want to know what little Mrs. Summers is going to do? And what the author is going to do is, is she going to punish little Mrs. Summers? Is she going to be exposed as someone who wasted all this money on silk stockings while her kids, those little urchins, are at home? Huh, let's hear the end. One quick note so I don't have to interrupt. The blue points are crabs, a Louisiana specialty. Some nice cuisine there. Okay, where will she go next? What's going to happen? I can't wait. There was a restaurant at the corner. She had never entered its doors. From the outside, she had sometimes caught glimpses of spotless damask and shining crystal and soft-stepping waiters serving people of fashion. When she entered, her appearance created no surprise, no consternation, as she had half-feared it might. She seated herself at a small table alone, and an attentive waiter at once approached to take her order. She did not want a profusion. She craved a nice and tasty bite, a half dozen blue points, a plump chop with cress, a something sweet, a creme frappe, for instance, a glass of Rhine wine, and after all, a small cup of black coffee. While waiting to be served, she removed her gloves very leisurely and laid them beside her. Then she picked up a magazine and glanced through it, cutting the pages with a blunt edge of her knife. It was all very agreeable. The damask was even more spotless than it had seemed through the window, and the crystal more sparkling. There were quiet ladies and gentlemen who did not notice her, lunching at the small tables like her own. A soft, pleasing strain of music could be heard, and a gentle breeze was blowing through the window. She tasted a bite, and she read a word or two, and she sipped the amber wine and wiggled her toes in the silk stockings. The price of it made no difference. She counted the money out to the waiter and left an extra coin on his tray, whereupon he bowed before her as before a princess of royal blood. There was still money in her purse, and her next temptation presented itself in the shape of of a matinee poster. It was a little later when she entered the theater. The play had begun and the house seemed to her to be packed. But there were vacant seats here and there. And into one of them she was ushered between brilliantly dressed women who had gone there to kill time and eat candy and display their gaudy attire. There were many others who were there solely for the play and acting. It is safe to say there was no one present who bore quite the attitude which Mrs. Summers did to her surroundings. 
She gathered in the whole, stage and players and people, in one wide impression, and absorbed it and enjoyed it. She laughed at the comedy and wept. She and the gaudy woman next to her wept over the tragedy, and they talked a little together over it. And the gaudy woman wiped her eyes and sniffed on a tiny square of filmy, perfumed lace and passed little Mrs. Summers her box of candy. The play was over. The music ceased. The crowd filed out. It was like a dream ended. People scattered in all directions. Mrs. Summers went to the corner and waited for the cable car. A man with keen eyes, who sat opposite to her, seemed to like the study of her small, pale face. It puzzled him to decipher what he saw there. In truth, he saw nothing, unless he were wizard enough to detect a poignant wish, a powerful longing that the cable car would never stop anywhere, but go on and on with her forever. Okay, there we go. A pair of silk stockings by Kate Chopin. Thank you, Emma. A cable car that doesn't stop like Thelma and Louise in the car. Going over the cliff, frozen in time, the dream not yet ended. Or like your humble podcaster with the lottery ticket he hopes never to have to check. I could still be a winner, people. I'm a mega millionaire in my mind for a few days more. It's not about greed. It's not about sin or morality or ethics. There's no judgment here to say, hey, don't you see that this woman next to you is gaudy? You don't really want to be like her, do you? And gosh darn this society for running ads like the ones in Vogue magazine. Hint, hint, fearless and truthful. Kudos to Vogue for running the story about consumerism. Although it probably did sell a a few pairs of silk stockings and kid gloves, I would guess. The story makes you want those things, doesn't it? Indulge yourself once in a while, but Chopin is avoiding the pitfalls and cliches of this situation. All that clunkiness and predictable clucking. She's saying, hey, this is what happens. This is how it feels. How it feels to give these things up. And then to give yourself up. You lose something essential. And when you get a chance to get it back, you cling to that change. Your old self which was not the shabby self, but the one who didn't struggle quite so hard or live without quite so much. Speaking of which, we'll have to live without one another for a few days, won't we? Hopefully it will not be a struggle. Although it will be for me, because I miss you all so much. But hopefully that will not be the case for you. Be free to do things, enjoy life, and then come back for an episode on the rise of the novel, the backlash against it, and a broader look at societal changes and disruptions and how to manage those with an entrepreneurial spirit. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>